This episode is dedicated to Michael Salazar and Jacob Spinks for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. Angel Q here, a.k.a. John Delancey. And I love, I love what has been written about you, that you love wrestling, pasta, kittens, and socialism. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's absolutely great. Not QAnon, but we are committed to anti-vascist action. Welcome to Southpaw <laughs> Deep Space Nine. This is the podcast where I, a veteran Star Trek fan, Angel Marti, take our friend Southpaw host Sam uh, as a journey into Star Trek fandom by watching episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and discussing the political messages, both uh, subtextual and textual. Uh, for other people who are joining us, this show isn't just intended as like a watch along for people who are already fans like me. This is sort of an, uh, a way to make uh, Star Trek fandom more accessible. And because, you know, with a show and a franchise with the history and the uh, very esoteric lore to it, uh, it sometimes you need a guide. You need somebody to help crack it open and untie the Gordian knot. And this is what this show is about. As uh, Angel was saying, it's not just for avid fans and not even necessarily for fans watching for the first time. It's even for people who don't want to watch. Then you can just listen to us and we'll give you the episode summary so you're not missing anything. You can just listen to this in your car and uh, then you can tell people that you've watched Star Trek Deep Space Nine and you can just uh, <laughs> totally skip towards getting that nerd cred without having to put any of the work into it. Well, I think it's more and more common now for people to just read about something so they could be aware of the canon without investing their time into like fully watching the whole thing, whether it's from anime or like a lot of people follow pro wrestling like that just through like updates and dirt sheets and whatever, or even MMA. A lot of people don't even watch the events. They just read up about it. Everything I know about Doctor Who, I learned from osmosis through Tumblr. So that, <laughs> that exactly. definitely makes a lot of sense. So I think what's different nowadays is that you don't have to be ashamed about it anymore. Well, there's so much media and so little time and energy. Nobody like nobody should expect everybody to consume all of like the media like through the normal ways. Let's if there was a way to like soilentize, you know, like Netflix shows and just sort of drink it as a slurry, I'm sure people would find a way to do it. That's what that's what this show is. It's a it's a deep space nine soilent slurry. The slurry that uh, Neo drinks, and then now he knows jujitsu. This is the slurry <laughs> that you drink, and now you know all of DS9 without ever having to watch it. I know Dabo. <laughs> what I'm bringing to this is also not just fresh eyes, but trying to be unbiased. All right. Well, here's here's a this week's episode is uh, one by six Qless, which is the first and only appearance of Q. 
in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. With the title, is this supposed to be a play on words with Q as in Clueless? Yeah, I think so. After Q's initial appearance in uh, the Star Trek The Next Generation pilot encounter at Farpoint, almost every episode that features him in some way or another, well, every episode that like centers around him has some kind of pun on the word Q. We open this episode with another episode of The Adventures of Dr. Horny! <laughs> so one of the things that we learn about Dr. Bashir here is that he uh, was a, he achieved the rank of salutatorian in medical school <laughs> instead of being valedictorian because he got one question wrong where he mistook a preganglionic fiber for uh, a postganglionic nerve. And uh, I just wanted to drop that. That um little thi- that sort of recurring thing about him getting that question wrong does come back in later episodes but uh i think the the more interesting thing about this scene is that as he's in the middle of trying to uh impress uh this woman with uh his nerd cred uh <laughs> we pan over and one uh, we pan over to one of the other people in the rebel mat which is miles o'brien and uh i think i mentioned before in the first ep- in in our first episode that you know uh, it, it's not too spoiler to say that that we do see a, de- a relationship develop between um, uh, O'Brien and Bashir. And uh, we do get some lovely just like O'Brien giving wordless, like seriously, like you see in the shit kind of reactions to uh, other people in this episode. Uh, so unfortunately, Bashir gets uh, shuttlecock blocked. I was proud of myself for that pun because... Uh, him, him and O'Brien are called, he and O'Brien are called by Cisco down to the shuttle bay where Dax and, uh, crewman cannon fodder. Uh, they mentioned, they mentioned some other person in the, uh, shuttle who wasn't a main character. And I was for sure go- thinking that like that person was going to be dead as soon as they opened the shuttle bay. But no, it was just that there was only supposed to be two people in there. Uh, Cisco says there are only supposed to be two people in the shuttle, but Bashir's instruments are registering three life forms. And when they open the shuttle, O'Brien rescues, um, uh, O'Brien gets the shuttle unlocked. Kira and Sisko muscle the door open and they're able to get out Dax and the other crewmen. And uh, they find out the third person is Vash. And uh, the reason why we are supposed to care is because Vash is another crossover character from The Next Generation. So uh, for those who care about these specifics, Vash uh, played by Jennifer Hetrick, is a character who previously appeared in two episodes of The Next Generation, uh, season three, episode 19 at Captain's Holiday, where she was introduced as having met uh, uh, Captain Picard on the planet Risa, which uh, Risa appears else uh, in Deep Space Nine again. If for those of just Risa is basically like the horny vacation planet, like it, it's. I, I don't want to sp- spend too much time talking about Risa, but Risa is a fun bit of, star- of the Star Trek world. But uh, And then Cupid, which is uh, season four, episode 20, 420 nice, blaze it, uh, where um, uh, that's where we get Vash returning. And then also we get a Q episode. That episode's called Cupid. Uh, so Miles says it's been years uh, since seeing Vash, but it's it's just been two because because at this point, we're in season six of Deep Sp- of uh, the Next Generation, while season one of Deep Space Nine is on. So, to describe the character, Vash is uh, a bit of like a more honest version of Indiana Jones because, like, she's a renegade archaeologist who uh, is not she's human, but she's not Starfleet. 
And uh, originally she was written to be a love interest for Picard because Picard's like main, you know, intellectual interest outside of being a Starfleet captain is he's an archaeologist and a historian. So he loves archaeology. Like the first episode, uh, the, the captain's holiday, it's like he gets captivated by Vash because she's an archaeologist. And then it turns out there's some site where, uh, you know, there's like a special artifact and then it turns out that vash is trying to steal it to smuggle it and sell it for a profit and picard because he's our uh ace commie uh, uh king uh instantly uh stops liking vash because of that uh uh and so then they then he like turns her in and then they get separated so the shuttlecraft was had just come back from a journey to the gamma quadrant and uh everybody was like how did this non-Starfleet-affiliated uh, human end up in the Gamma Quadrant? And she says, uh, vaguely, a friend dropped her off. And right after saying that, after every everybody walks off camera, the camera pans to somebody in the background who turns around and reveals, it is Q. But, uh, but just so for anybody else who doesn't understand Q, Q has been a part of Star Trek lore since the beginning of The Next Generation. Like he was, he first in, appears in the pilot episode Encounter at Farpoint. And he's basically, an, uh, like in that episode, it's established that he's like this omnipotent alien being that positions himself as both humanity's judge and like an amused watcher. Cause it's like Picard. In his first mission as uh, commander of the new Enterprise, like they go to this station called Farpoint because it's sort of at the edge of like known space to the Federation. And so as they are, you know, reaching the bounds of like explored space, Q kind of appears to say like, hey, you know, little puny mortals, uh, if you go out beyond this, like you're going to run into some shit you don't really understand. Are you ready for that? And he like puts humanity on trial, like through, you know, makes, makes the enterprise crew stand trial for humanity. And, um, and, you know, sort of goes through humanity's barbarous past and like basically, you know, the whole episode is basically saying like, wow, humanity's done some fucked up shit. Are you like ready to become something better? And of course, Picard is like, you know, yes, we are. We are ready to explore strange new worlds. I've always wondered, is Q supposed to be an explanation for God or gods? Like, did a Q create Earth? Did humans create their religions based around Qs? And is Star Trek canon based on intelligent design? Meaning like a Q is the intelligent designer, right? The watchmaker. So Q... Q as like is sort of is part of this race that is known as the Q continuum. So there's sort of a, an implication that like they have gone to uh, other planets and been like, you know, received and treated as like, you know, different trickster gods. But as far as Earth is concerned, no, like they don't they don't create. Um, you actually have another question here about like do they have their own version of the prime directive and actually yeah they do kind of like especially in voyager uh it you know uh in voyager they do sort of explore the nature of the q continuum a little bit more it seems like the q continuum are like geographically more based in the delta quadrant because we meet a couple of other q beings um and actually the q that is played by john delancey is kind of seen as a little bit of a pariah because he 
takes this special fascination and interest with humanity and sort of plays around in them with them in a way that is, uh, you know, not uh, looked upon kindly. You know, the funny thing is, like, did humans, uh, did Q create Earth? No. There is, though, an episode of The Next Generation that uh, sort of reveals that there was, like, an alien race uh, that, like, basically seeded their DNA, like, there were a humanoid race that basically seeded their DNA around the galaxy and are, like, the originators of, like, all the sentient life that we are heretofore familiar with in the galaxy, which is, like, they never really reference the events of that episode again because that seems like a very broadly sweeping thing to like it like creatively if i was like if i was like a an author if i was a writer working on a very serialized uh version of uh of a show like Star Trek the Next Generation and i was like how do i incorporate the revelation like that all of the sentient life that we know does have a common genetic ancestor like into this epi- into the show that resets itself at the end of every week can they travel outside of the galaxy cuz from what i gather right most of star trek all the shows seem to take place in the milky way galaxy you are correct i believe q uh, q can definitely travel outside the galaxy. And I think in one episode, like ends up sort of like uh, snapping his fingers and sending the enterprise D to like another galaxy for a moment. So it's like, there seems to be no actual like restriction to their power at the, at the very least there, there hasn't been like any actual uh, episode where like the fact that like, you know, Q never like runs into a plot related or a convenient to the plot restriction on his power. But Q like like i said he positions himself as sort of like the, a judge and also like an interested watcher you know almost guardian of humanity he takes this very like special fascination with uh picard because you know he is a, an extraordinarily intelligent being with extraordinary compassion and and um Oftentimes he will come into, especially when he's on the next generation and, and I, I, it's been a while since I've watched the Voyager Q episode. So I can't say if it's done the same way on Voyager, but I think it's done a little bit more closer to this is usually he introduces some kind of chaotic element that helps people figure out what the problem is without like spoon feeding it to them because he has this underlying uh, confidence in the power of humanity to solve issues. It's like, usually whenever whenever Q appears, it's because there is some mystery that he wants to point out and then incur... He's, he's chaotic good, honestly, or like chaotic neutral. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Memory Alpha points out that um, a week later, uh, after this episode broadcast, then there was an episode of The Next Generation where he appears. It's called Tapestry because it's not centered around Q, even though Q plays a significant thing. It's like it's, a, it's an episode where Picard is basically like uh, on his deathbed 
and Q sort of appears to him and makes him like sort of relive his entire life. It's a little bit sort of like uh, uh, it's a wonderful life kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but like, you know, he he gets Picard to appreciate the fact that like, you know, some of the seemingly bad choices in his life actually you know, are what made him who he is. So Q definitely like works at his best as this device that's like, I'm going to, you may think that I'm messing with you, but I'm like pointing you in the right direction of these things, which like is absolutely not what he does in this episode, which is like, to me, what makes it a big um, miss. So we return, we have sick bay where Vash totally short circuits Bashir by throwing horny beams back at him. Like uh, we, we, in, in previous episodes where Vash appears, it's like, we do know that like Vash is sort of a bit of a film noir femme fatale in that she can use her, um, you know, her guile and her charms to uh, control people. And uh, when, when, when Bashir sees that like Vash is like not only receptive, but like throwing (laughs) out her own energy, he like, short circuits for a moment but then switches to this like actually sincerely charming mode where like he's not actually trying to impress vash but like is very very clearly and without pretense being like hey you're kind of cool can i ask you out which is still vastly inappropriate because she's a patient but like it does seem like he has this weird like mental switch where he can go from being very cringe and very awkward at flirting to like being actually genuinely suave. Like, like, did you pick up on that sort of bifurcation? My reading is different in that when he turned more suave, he actually crossed the line even more. Interesting. Just brass tacks, right? It's one thing to do that. And then he literally asked her out. He did it in the best way possible instead of being creepy at it. He became more suave about it, but like, no, dude. It's like first he hits on coworkers, and now a patient who's not just a patient, but a patient in in his office yeah. while in treatment, right? So it seems like writers spent a lot of time on thinking about the prime directive, <laughs> but didn't give much thought on code of conduct. It made me really think about: Do they have lawsuits in the future? Do they have lawsuits on Star Trek? They definitely have lawyers, you know, <laughs> in the in in Star Trek, and so again. I just want to throw out there that like Bashir does not stay like this. Like everybody, who, <laughs> everybody who is like unfamiliar with the show and just watching your react, your dislike of Bashir as he is right now is valid. And I just think that you will be given more reasons to actually like him later on. So don't write him off as completely irredeemable, even though he's definitely like, uh, <laughs> you know, crossing lines here. I mean, Bashir doesn't have autonomy. He just has to do whatever the writers write, right? So their intention might not be to make him like this. It's just that's how it's coming off right now. Here, So we then cut to Cisco and Dax are discussing Vash, who is immediately sus because, you know, she's a human who's not gone through any of, like, the mission. Like, like as we've, as we've established yet uh, last week in the Tosk episode, DS9's uh, whole job is to monitor the wormhole and uh and so if any kind of you know federation citizen should have gone through the wormhole to get to the gamma quadrant so they're like how the hell um 
did this happen? And we as the audience, if we have also been watching TNG, would understand that clearly this is because of Q, because at the end of the last episode where Vash appeared, Q also appeared. And at the end of that episode, basically, Q like uh, lures, lures Vash into his cosmic alien god windowless van with archaeological candy. So we then move on to Vash. Vash has some special treasure to store in a fancy lockbox run by a fancy lockbox man. <laughs> Uh, uh, she like, there's, there's this whole scene where she has like all of these like valuable archeological artifacts that there's then this whole like inventory scene. So, uh, we then in the middle of all of the, uh, of the artifacts, we see a huge glowy orb, which due to camera placement and comment on it, we can understand this is the MacGuffin of the week. Uh, but, uh, I, I do want to say again, put this in the back of your head. So Cisco catches Vash on her way out of the fancy lockbox man's store and uh, tries to grill her, try to find out how she got to the Gamma Quadrant in this lovely uh, combination of imposing and charming that I think uh, Avery Brooks is able to pull off really well. Quark is observing them from afar, so obviously some nefarious stuff is going around. And we get this wonderful, like, like uh, Cisco is sort of asking about her nature as like a scientist, but also like a smuggler. And we get this wonderful line that says, when it comes to a choice between science and profit, I'll choose profit every time. Hey, Sam, do you think she works for the CDC? <laughs> yeah, CDC says profit. <laughs> Sorry to date this episode for otherwise timeless uh, Trek shows, but I just had to get that one off. So Cisco offered, so apparently it turns out that uh, Vash is like, because of her like routine illegal activities, like doesn't really want to go back to Earth because she's in trouble with a bunch of people. But because she is like one of the first humans to explore the the uh, Gamma Quadrant, Cisco offers to like use his authority to sort of like clear up all of that shit so she can uh, do a report to the Daystrom Institute. And again, nerd stuff. The Daystrom Institute is named after a famous computer, like a, a computer scientist that appears in one episode of the original series as like the guy who designed all of the computer systems on Starfleet ships. And then uh, it sort of is repeated. It, it comes up later on in uh, in subsequent Trek shows. It's just basically like the Federation's premier science institute. So we go back to the shuttlecraft from earlier. Uh, and, uh, Miles is examining it and turns out like there's nothing wrong with anything on the ship. It's just, there seemed to be like this drainage of the power sources. Uh, could this be Q's doing? Uh, there's a conversation where, uh, uh, O'Brien is talking to Cisco about Vash and mentions the fact that, uh, um, Picard and Vash were sort of a thing. And, uh, Cisco says, uh, she doesn't seem to be his type. And that's because... Cisco knows what we know is that Picard is our asexual king and he does not have a type. And then uh, power drains start happening on the station, just like they happened on the shuttlecraft. In the midst of that disquieting chaos, uh, Miles shows uh, Vash to her quarters. And uh, because, you know, because he's the only one from the next generation in the main cast, so it makes sense that and also, I guess maybe he's like the resident butler now. He just is the one who shows everybody who visits the station to their quarters. And when Vash gets into her quarters, there's this huge um, statue in the middle of her room. And I half expected Odo, it's Odo to like be, have been that because I'm just so used to now just Odo's always doing his fucking entrapment on everybody. Entrapment slash stalking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So here we finally see, uh, so when 
Vash gets to a room, Q finally shows up, and then we see sort of like a whole explanation for what's going on here, which is like Q and Vash are like, they had a sort of a lover's quarrel. It's like Q was taking her around the Gamma Quadrant and then like Vash didn't like putting up with Q and asked her to leave him, leave him alone. And now like Q's here because he's like, can't deal with rejection and is kind of petty chasing after Vash. Like, I don't know for his feelings or whatever. I want to drop something here, uh, which is like, this is a quote from memory alpha about this episode, which is that John Delancey, uh, the actor who plays Q expressed some disappointment with this episode and agrees with the fans who felt that Q was acting out of character. According to Delancey, Q is best used when he deals with large philosophical issues and skirt chasing just isn't one of them. Yeah. To use pro wrestling psychology and like booking, you weaken a character, you weaken a gimmick, right? Like you're supposed to sell this character strong and in certain ways. And then when you have them do a certain program, program meaning like a storyline in pro wrestling, you know, sometimes a booker or whoever comes up with the storyline can actually not do that character justice and make them look really weak, which then diminishes that character, right? And makes that character now less believable to fans. Pro wrestling is all about believability, right? So in that same logical sense, Q then seems very weak now after this episode. Oh my God, Q in this episode is undisputed champion Chris Jericho becoming Stephanie McMahon's lackey in 2002. Yeah, which all the insiders and dirt sheets were like complaining about, right? Yeah. So because of the uh, both talk of profit and uh, the miasma of horny, who else shows up but Quark? Uh, The only... Uh, so there is there is a great uh, th- they do do some great uh, comedy moments here where Quark shows up to talk to Vash and then Q immediately like makes him disappear, which I think is wonderful. And then when uh, Q brings him back because he's somebody who is like so committed to appealing to looking like a confident businessman, he just shrugs off the fact that he just had his mortal essence like shot across space-time instantaneously. Uh, I love that about Quark. Like, Quark's just one of my one of my problematic faves. And he basically comes to Vash, like, saying, hey, you have all these, you know, valuable things. Uh, let's do an auction and split the profits. And in the middle of discussing how the uh, profits should be split, Vash is able to get an advantageous deal just basically by jacking his ears off. Uh, uh, in, case, in case anybody was curious, Umox, like the the very much uh, erotic stimulation of Ferengi ears, is established as being a thing as early as TNG season three because Waxana Troy uh, does this to like uh, get a um, uh, to get a Ferengi to do what she wants. And then, of course, because the horny never ends, <laughs> as soon as Quark leaves, we have Doctor Horny on a return mission to shoot another photon torpenus at her. So. <laughs> Went from cringe to even worse because now the doctor is visiting a patient at her quarters. A doctor in real life, not only now, but back in the 90s, would not only get fired, but probably arrested if they did the same thing. So there's some Federation privilege going on, right? I think it feels like once you're part of the Federation, I think even the writers feel a little licensed. Like, ah, they could get away with a little bit more because this was also before the idea of privilege became more mainstream and even before a lot of, like, the learning moments through Me Too. Yeah, and, uh, you know, but also, like, part of me just realized it's like, I don't know if, like, 
this would have been as bad if he didn't show up in uniform. (laughs) You know, it's like we do see at various times, you know, characters who are part of the Starfleet crew in casual dress. But it's like the fact that Bashir shows up like in uniform either means like he's on duty or like he's like just there's something about like the the, the fact that he shows up in his duty uniform is like basic is like again it makes it very clear from a visual sense that like this is him mixing the personal and the professional which makes it even worse yeah <laughs> but i again i wanted to return to this thing that is like here in this scene in this scene bashir's just totally like genuinely suave and it seems to me that like the writers couldn't decide it's like they wanted bashir to be this bumbling awkward nerd you know kind of like a i don't know like a like a revenge of the nerds type character is just like kind of like you know horny but nerdy but it's like then they realized that they cast this dude alexander siddick who's this like genuinely handsome and charming sudanese british man and it's like they couldn't let him just not be genuinely uh, uh, attractive. I felt like the writers themselves don't know what appropriate behavior is in mating and dating and relationships right now. <laughs> Maybe they themselves will have like sensitivity training <laughs> maybe during the season and then the writing will change. But right now, I'm wondering what they're like on dates. So we then have a scene where so so. Vash and and Bashir actually set up a date, but then Q interferes. He disguises himself as a Bajoran waiter at the replomat and then sort of like tries to scare Bashir off. And then and this is like the as far as my awareness of Q, this is like the only time he's ever like really used his power to like directly manipulate somebody against their free will like this. He like basically like makes Bashir so tired he has to go to sleep and cancel the date, which like he then responds, like he says, Bashir says, like, I think I need to go to sleep. And and uh, and Q says, hopefully by yourself for a change. <laughs> so my wife has been watching all the uh, Deep Space Nine. <laughs> you fucked me <laughs> sorry, sorry, I fucked you up. <laughs> Please don't edit that out because that's so funny. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So she's been casually watching Deep Space Nine along with me just because I'm turning it on and she happens to be in the room. At this moment, this scene is when she blurts out, is Bashir supposed to be a sex pest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's there's a lot of just like, uh, like you said, sensitivity trainings just for Bashir <laughs> or like, or like they're only, they're just for Bashir, but like, because they don't want to like throw one person on blast, like they, like the whole crew has to go through a sensi- <laughs> sensitivity training, but like they all know it's because of Bashir and they all hate him because of that. <laughs> but uh, no, no, absolutely. I, I mean, like, I think I, you know, and again, like whatever, semi-spoiler, but it's, I think it's useful for the, just discussing the character from a literary standpoint. I think like as the show goes on, 
two things happen to Bashir um, that like just allow him to go. The, the, the writers find something to do with this character beyond just, oh, you know, he's fucking Dr. Horny. Like they find more like little things to, to explore about him. And then also he uh, he develops a friendship with Miles O'Brien. And like, I think like in real life, once a man, you know, develops more like supportive, emotionally fulfilling homosocial relationships, they don't require to, you know, they don't have to unload all of their emotional fulfillment needs onto their romantic partners. So, uh, but we'll see how that develops right now. Right now we know that Miles just, you know, d- it doesn't, doesn't like him at all. But, uh, but so this scene actually sort of, uh, crystallized to me, uh, what Q is in this episode in that he's not the ex the bitter ex-boyfriend begging to uh a girl to take him back he is the gay male best friend who thinks that none of the guys a girl dates are good enough for her like he is i mean and and i'm not the first one to uh, i mean there i'm not the first one to do any kind of like you know a uh, queer reading of Q's character just because like especially there's a lot of delicious homoerotic subtext in his interactions with Picard. Uh, you know, like there's literally an episode of the next generation where it's like uh, Picard, like wakes up in bed shirtless and cues next to him. Like, you know, there, there is definitely like a, you know, there, there is a very campy sort of catty thing to, to cue. And like this scene helps me like make sense. Okay. Like this is the dynamic here. He's like, He's the one that like the girl hung out with all the damn time. And then when she finally got a boyfriend, he resents the fact that she's not hanging out with him as much. So finally, finally, we start to get towards, towards, uh, you know, the meat, the, the, the plot sort of swings into uh, the, the height of the conflict when O'Brien recognizes Q and then tells Cisco and Cisco reveals that he always already knows. Um, he already knows about Q because all star he went to a starfleet briefing about him which then makes you think like shouldn't bashir have like recognized q's face because like his disguise as a bajoran was very lame but i guess we're also within a universe where like we accept that like just a few ridges on the nose like is supposed to be a convincing uh non-human alien but you know uh, i won't i won't pry that open sir but um so as as they figure out the Q's on the station, there are more power losses losses happening, and then O'Brien blames it on Q because usually whenever Q shows up, you know trouble happens. Then uh, we get into Vash showing uh, Quark all of her artifacts and shows her uh, shows him the orb, and uh, I thought you'd get a kick out of my reaction to this line because uh, Quark tries to lowball her on the price by saying it doesn't have any intrinsic value. And my response after listening to Sam's wonderful six part, how the sausage is made uh, um, a series, I was just like, damn it, Quark, you know that the use value and the exchange value are never fixed. <laughs> now adding more nerd vectors into this episode. Yes. But, um, and then <laughs> I love here that like, during the process of negotiating the price, like Quark seems legitimately turned on that. Like there is capitalist <laughs> bootlicking, but then there's like Ferengi latinum humping. Like, like I think one of the things again, again, Quark is charming because even though he is, you know, a lowly, you know, capitalist, he's like one of the only few characters who's always very honest about what he wants and what he likes. And he's fucking turned on by commerce. 
So Cisco turns the fire hose on the two horny dogs and interrupts uh, to ask Vash about Q. And then, so we finally get, we get, we get to the scene where I feel like basically is summarizes the whole point of what this episode is, which is like Q starts like, you know, sassing at Cisco. And then as Cisco starts to like get angry, uh, he's just like, Oh, violence, you know, like let's, Let's uh, let's settle this with fisticuffs and turns into like sort of an old time strong man, like not, a, you know, 1800s boxer. And then Cisco just fucking punches him in the face. And then, <laughs> and then Q goes like, you hit me. Picard never hit me. And Cisco goes, I'm not Picard. I guess, I guess it's because it's like, there, you know, especially if you watch the What We Leave Behind documentary, that's sort of a retrospective on Deep Space Nine. There were like a lot of, early on there was like a lot of fan mail like complaining that like the crew of deep space nine was not like the next generation. (laughs) And this was like their way of saying deal with it, which I, you know, I do appreciate that aspect of it. They're punching the fans in the face. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Q in this episode, he's like, like the trolls, internet trolls. Yeah. And I will say, I will say like, I think this is like one of the more like sort of uh, socio-politically interesting scenes in that we do see how, like, Picard, who's, like, this more, he's a white man, and, like, you know, he's obviously more, like, of the literate, literate class, you know, because he's always quoting Shakespeare and stuff. He sort of has the uh, mental luxury to react to, like, the threats of Q, of violence from Q with, like, impassioned monologues about humanity evolving to be better than that, and that's why Q keeps coming back over and over again to mess with him, but Cisco, you know, who's a black man, like when somebody threatens violence against him, he responds in kind. You know, he shows that he's willing to actually like defend himself and he never gets bothered by Q again. Like Q never shows up again on Deep Space Nine. And I kind of like this does feel useful to me in that kind of like this is why the whole patronizing, you know, liberal attitude of like, you know, violence just makes you just as bad as the other side. You know, logic is kind of, you know, is flawed. So like, yeah. So if you, if some alien God comes bothering you, just fucking treat him like a shark and punch him in the nose. (laughs) So uh, I do want to just have a little note that following this, there's a great uh, bit of, (laughs) to me, just, this is a visual gag. I would watch this episode just for this moment. Because right after the scene, there's like a mystery alien dude who walks out of a, an airlock accompanied by a mystery Ferengi dude. And as they walk off camera, two other aliens follow who just like literally have bags over their heads. Like, and it's just like right after you get these two guys who have these very nice, complicated, like, you know, makeup prosthetics and stuff. And then the two aliens are just rip off of the Shockmaster. Either the budget must have run out for this episode or like just they got tired and they were just like, we don't have time to make a new alien head. As they get closer to auctioning off all of these items, the power, uh, the sort of every time there's like a power loss, there's like a graviton pulse that happens and it starts fucking with the ship, the station even more, uh, you know, and it causes a whole breach. But as soon as they, they point out, that there's a graviton pulse that happens. Cisco goes like, "Oh, I I don't think Q has to do with it." Finally, we do get we do get Odo admitting that he basically wire constantly wiretaps Quark, uh, except it's more like goo tapping. It turns out he was like he was uh, again. I guess the special effects budget uh, uh, ran out because 
because he we find out that Quark was uh, sorry that Odo was eavesdropping on the conversation between Vash and Quark disguised as a wine bottle, but we don't see him transform back from the wine bottle. But but there's this interesting scene where like he's talking about like he's talking about the the auction. And then Odo like presents what's basically kind of an anti-capitalist critique. And you you uh pointed this out in um in your notes as well, Sam, that he's just basically saying he does not understand the obsession with the accumulation of material wealth. And so Sam, I wanted to I wanted to engage you on this question because I thought, okay, so because I was thinking, okay, we have two questions here, which is we understand, you know, in our proper, you know, Marxist critique that, you know. Under capitalism, you know, the police basically serve as the guardians of private property versus the people. And so how do we square the circle of like Odo being a policeman, essentially, who like understands that, you know, property is not important and uh, and that human life is more important than property. Yet he did work for the very fascist Cardassians. Like, I mean, humans are a massive of uh contradictions and Odo is a mass of contradictions and goo. Like what do we think is like going on inside Odo's goo brain as far as like reconciling those very disparate things, Sam? Yeah. What is a police officer in a world where like property isn't what it used to be, where there's uh hollow suites and replicators and a queue that can create whatever you want, right? Then what is a police officer? So it seems more like a lot of times Odo is more like a bodyguard for the Federation officers and more of like an annoying like school mom telling everybody what they can do and what they can't do. But as far as like an institutional systematic thing, especially now that the Cardassians are gone and the Federation is here where property means even less, his role is less a role and it's just Odo. That's just his personality. Well, it is because then that, that, because like Quark, you know, trying to just figure out how Odo, like what makes Odo tick, he like asks him like, you know, don't you have anything you desire? And he goes like, I have my work. What more do I need? And so, and then I was thinking, you know, like we've, we've also learned early on that like Odo doesn't need really to uh, eat or drink or sleep. He just needs to, you know, turn back into a liquid state every like 16 hours. Uh, but you know, in a situation where you're a sentient being that doesn't have the same needs for survival, I guess maybe living to work isn't as alienating an experience and more just like this is this is his way of uh, <laughs> this is his way of like finding purpose. It's just bored and obsessive, right? Because <laughs> if it was somebody else, would they be the same way? Because like, what do you need to obsess for? Like, what is this property that you're protecting, right? Like, what is this thing that somebody could steal? Like, what are the stakes other than murder? what are the stakes? And like the other stakes aren't that high. So then he's purely doing it because that's just kind of how he is. And I guess because the character doesn't need anything, then the only drive that he has is to pester people. That effort needs to go somewhere. So he does everything extra. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, at the, at, like I said, especially in the last episodes, like we, we see at this point, it's not like, you know, people are going into the brig every day on Deep Space Nine. And it's not like, you know, the brig is chock full. So it's not like, Odo seems to not be incentivized to always be, you know, arresting and incarcerating people. So it is, it is, kind of, you're, I think you're, you're onto something where this just does feel like Odo's job is to just sort of like be the grumpy old man telling people to like stay off the lawn. Yeah. Cisco's like, just keep yourself busy. <laughs> yeah. So 
we see the point that like, you know, there is the, the power losses get worse as we get closer to, you know, actually auctioning off this orb thing. Uh, Q can't, runs into that, like Q appears before Vash again. And this time is like kind of, you know, being open, like basically using abuser tactics. Cause he's just like, Hey, I like saved your life one time when you got stung by some kind of space wasp and you could have died. And, uh, Usually Q is trying to like test people to see how well they can survive on their own. It's like he always like when he's when he appears on the next generation, like if there's some kind of mystery, he never makes like, you know, uh, he never makes people try and like act dependent on him. He's always like, I mean, there's one episode where he kind of like, you know, wants to see Picard swallow his pride and say that he needs Q's help. But the rest of the time, it's about like pointing them towards the mystery, pointing them towards the problem and seeing if they can figure it out. I think we just have to ignore this cue. It's like the fake Undertaker. We just kind of ignore it. <laughs> this is this is uh, Glenn Jacobs as Diesel as Q. Yes. The auction begins. And at the same time, uh, the graviton pulses uh, that are affecting the station make it fall out of its normal orbital position over Bajor and starts moving on a path straight to the wormhole so clearly it's like again as we see like there's some kind of thing happening that's linking this aberrant behavior and uh and whatever's being sold at this auction and there's a scene at the beginning of the auction where vash begins talking up one of the objects by you know giving a very sciencey kind of description of it and everybody's sort of showing a lack of uh interest in it and then quark takes over uh, selling it by just sort of, you know, pitching that it's rare and whatever, you know, it can be yours. And this, to me, would have better explained uh, her motivation for both, like, wanting to go back to Earth, for not wanting to work with Q anymore, if it had been this whole thread of, like, she misses being a scientist instead of being, like, a business person, which is what she's been. But, like, none of her previous dialogue or behavior really seems to suggest that. So this scene stood out to me as just being like, oh, this is a thread that could have like made everything else more coherent. Finally, when they go to auction the orange orb, um, there's a, you know, there's a bunch of techno, it's very TNG style techno babble. There's actually a great line earlier where Q says, if this was Picard's crew, they would have solved this techno babble earlier earlier in the show, which was sort of the writers making fun of the fact that they kind of hated having to come up with all these sciencey explanations for whatever happens in the plot. So they find some way to trace that the power uh, power drains are happening like with this um, object. And then they, Cisco and Kira go to the auction space and, uh, and uh, they do the little trick that they do other times where uh, Cisco puts his comm badge on the uh, orb and like uses that to, so that way they can lock onto it and beam it off the station. And then the orb they beam the orb off the station then it turns into like a space manta ray and heads straight into the wormhole and so at this point i just want to say that that you know this is again a kind of a tng type of ending where it's just like especially it's it's sort of reminiscent of a uh, of um encounter at farpoint the uh, pilot episode of tng where um you know it turns out the aliens are these kind of jellyfish creatures that then go off at the end but Again, I just want to say that this does pay off a little bit further on because there is a significance between that orb-shaped object specifically going into the wormhole. 
So again, it's then the episode ends with like Hugh just sort of arbitrarily deciding to let Vash go. And then, uh, you know, then Vash heads off into the sunset and it's like, yeah, it's kind of an unsatisfying, (laughs) it's kind of an otherwise an unsatisfying end to a bit of an awkward episode. Q doesn't come to you. You run into Q when you are trying to go on a journey of discovery. He is a metaphor for the risk of the unknown. Like Q is a human embodiment of like, you are going like farther than you've ever, you are. He's the frontier. Yeah, he is the frontier, which is why he doesn't work on Deep Space Nine, because Deep Space Nine isn't about exploration. It's about how people's relationships continue to evolve as they have to deal with each other. Doesn't have the right chemistry. Yeah, yeah. This episode itself, it's a, you know, it's a miss, you know, but I think that it does serve an overall function of like the show figuring out what it is not. So I want to say, though, I'm really excited for next week as far as like, I mean, I enjoy I, I hope everybody enjoyed listening to this episode of the podcast, but I am I'm definitely uh, excited for next week's episode of Deep Space Nine that we talk about because it's going to be Dax and it's going to be really nice and meaty with character development and exploration. I promise. So I hope you enjoyed our discussion of Qless and you'll enjoy next week even more. So uh, before we say goodbye, I want to let everybody know that if you like this, please continue to support the entire Southpaw network and project. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash southpawpod. There are different levels of involvement. You can even contribute for as little as $4 a month. And a little does a lot. You know, you'll be supporting this show. You'll be supporting Fight Study. You'll be supporting Pride Never Die. You'll be supporting Working Stiff Radio. There's just, and you'll be able to join the Discord. There's just a bustling, lovely, promenade-like community of stuff happening in Southpaw. Hit us with the music, maestro. Bye.